chapter 8. We're going to conclude our, our look at Gideon. Uh, while you're turning there, I would also like to uh, tell you one more thing. Me and Matt and Glenn and Hannah and a couple others, Kimbra and Jenna, we're headed to California tomorrow morning at 4 in the morning uh, for the Vineyard National Conference and uh, sort of a big deal. Uh, would love for you guys to pray for us. Hannah and Glenn and I, and along with Matt, we're playing on the Wednesday night in, in the main session, uh, which is sort of awesome and bizarre. Um, there's a lot of other vineyard churches out there, and for them to have us come and do worship, and then I'm going to do some speaking on Thursday, is pretty remarkable. And uh, we'd like to do we'd like to do everything that's in our heart to do, if that makes sense. So if you think of us, uh, pray for us. Also, they're going to stream the whole conference online. We'll put a po- we'll post a little link on on Facebook so you could pick it up and if you've got an ipad or a, or a laptop at home you could watch it and you could hang out with us so we're going to be uh, leading worship on wednesday night uh of course by the time you know california time and everything uh, about 11 o'clock so while you're laying in bed you can hang out with us it'll be really cool awesome everybody at uh, judges chapter eight good deal hey i want to talk to you this morning about the end of gideon's life we spent several weeks looking at gideon i feel like the lord has a lot of there for us and I feel like the Lord has something for us again this morning as well. And we're going to look at a part of Gideon's life that's uh, probably the most unknown part of Gideon's life. The parts of Gideon's life that are known are like, you know, an angel of the Lord in the wine press. People know about that. Uh, People know about Gideon taking 300 and going and fighting an army of 135,000 and winning. People know that. People know about like Gideon's whole fleece thing. But this next section of Gideon's life is is little known, but I, I feel like it contains one of the most important uh, words from the from the Lord for us, and uh, we're going to look at that this morning. Um, last week, when I began the began the message, uh, started by saying that human beings, people, people like us, one of the things that we really like is we really like stories. Uh, everybody in the room likes stories, and everybody who's in the world likes stories. And in fact, uh, we're so narrative oriented that we tend to see our life in terms of a story. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons we do that is because we know that story always contains meaning. And so we're, so we're looking for meaning in our life. And one of the things that we do is we will tend to review our life or think about our life in terms of these events and actions and things that happen. And we're looking for this commonality of narrative. And we're looking to see what the meaning of life is. We're just we're story people, not only in terms of our own life, but we also just like stories. We like to read books. We like to watch movies. We like to have somebody funny tell us a funny story. We're just into that sort of thing. And there are certain kinds of stories that you and I really like. Uh, one of the stories that we really, really like is we like it when the underdog wins. Uh, we like an underdog story. We like a comeback story. We like a story where the loser at the end of the story becomes a winner. And one of the other things we really like is we like it when justice gets served at some point. So we love a story that has, in particular, we love a story that has an underdog who wins at the end, and if they can somehow manage to right some injustice, right some wrong, like that's a winner. You know, that's Hollywood in 38 seconds there. That's what Hollywood's all about. Um, And one of the other things that we really like about stories is we really like happy endings. Um, If you were a director of a movie, everyone in Hollywood knows that if you will make the movie have a happy ending, you'll make a lot more money. Because you and I, instinctively, I think, I think that says something not just about what we like, but I think it says something about us, is that we're all hoping for a happy ending, right? I don't think anyone's hope. No one, you know, rolls over to their wife or their husband or their significant other and says, you know, I'm really hoping that my life ends up terribly ever after. 
we're all hoping for happy endings. And um, one of the things that we're going to look at this morning is the end of Gideon's life. And unfortunately, it's not a happy ending. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a sad ending. Um, and I want to read you a few scriptures before we go any further. I want to read you chapter 8, starting in verse 22 through 28. Uh, and I want to set this up just for a moment. Uh, Gideon has taken his 300 into the Midian camp. 120,000 have experienced the panic of the Lord, and they've slashed each other. Another 15,000, along with the two kings of Midian, ran away. At this point, Gideon has gone after those, and he has captured them, and he has killed them. And now he's come back, and in verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, You should rule over us, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the share of the plunder. Uh, so the, the Midian army, uh, the, every, every man who fought in the army had a, like a gold or a silver earring. And Gideon said, I want that. And they answered, we'll be glad to give them to you. So they spread out a garment and they threw a ring of the plunder onto it. And the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, which is about 40 pounds and ends up being about 150 years wages for someone, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's necks. And Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which is like this priestly garment, and he placed it in, in Orpha, his town, and all Israel, this is important, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it and became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. Now I want to jump down to, I think, verse 33. Is that the next one? No sooner than Gideon died that the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. And they set up Baal Bereth as their God, and they did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. So Gideon's life is a life that is high highs and low lows. And you and I, we love stories where there's happy endings, but there is no happy ending here. In fact, it's a pretty sad ending. Um, bit of a bummer. Bit of a bummer. It's one of the unique things about the Scripture is that the Scripture doesn't give us sanitized versions of people's lives. Um, the Scripture doesn't gloss over uh, the director, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't alter the ending so that it'll sell better. He, he just, he's like that, he's like kind of a, he's, the Holy Spirit's kind of like Quentin Tarantino. Like right when you hope that the camera's going to flinch and move or change, it doesn't, and then you see something you had hoped that you wouldn't see. I'm the only guy in America who's ever going to compare the Holy Spirit to Quentin Tarantino. Bam, mark that down. But for those of us who are hoping for a sanitized version, uh, the one with the bow tie on top, uh, the sweeping string crescendo of cellos and violins at the end with the sunset and everyone cries and goes home, that's not what we get here. And it's a real bummer in some ways, sort of a bummer. Um, it's also sort of cool. Uh, it's cool for a couple reasons. Uh, one, I'm glad because the Bible presents people as they really are. Not as we would like them to be sometimes, but it presents them as they really are. Uh, has anyone in the room ever experienced like a great victory in the Lord, only to a few days later experience a great defeat? 
or be extremely boneheaded. I mean, you're in great company in the scripture. You're perfectly suitable to be in the Bible. It's a good thing. It presents people who are weak and frail and people who are in process. But the whole time someone's weak and frail and in process, they're always dearly loved. That's one of the weak, frail, in process, dearly loved. So the Bible is a text which doesn't gloss over failure or overlook a person's who a person really is or is becoming. A um, couple of reasons I really appreciate this. I appreciate it because, number one, it causes me to trust the Scriptures all the more. The fact that the Bible doesn't gloss over people, the fact that it doesn't sanitize someone's life, the fact that the Bible doesn't end things short or alter the ending actually causes me to trust the Scripture even more. And the reason is this. The reason is is because this, the Bible in particular is the only holy document that I know of anywhere where it's heroes or failures. And the Bible admits it. No other text has heroes who are failures. The Bible, the Bible tells life like it really, really is. It causes me to actually trust it. And then number two, um, if you're a wise person, if you're a person who can read the text and understand the story on the upper level, but then also understand the story maybe on a level or two below, and if you're a person who is reading the Scripture not just for um, Bible knowledge, not just so that you can win Bible trivia games somewhere, um, but if you're reading the Scripture at the level of what is, its, what is God's Word to me, then it affords us the opportunity to learn and do better. And so in the life of Gideon, even though it doesn't have an, a happy ending, the, happy, the lack of a happy ending causes me to trust the Scripture more and as a result to trust the Spirit more, and it affords us an opportunity to learn. Um, the first thing that I want to say about Gideon's story, his high highs of victory and his low lows of leading the nation into apostasy, the first thing I'd like to say is this, uh, that starting well is not the same as ending well. And, and we really need to hear this. Starting well is not the same as ending well. It seems obvious, but it should be pointed out. It's not how things begin, but it's how things end that holds a good deal of importance. And it's one of the reasons that we're looking for a happy ending because we're hoping that things get tied up right. Um, but sometimes sometimes things don't. And, and for you and I, one of the things that we need to internalize and we need to grab hold of right now is just because we've started well or just because we have made some sort of a transition with God doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go on well. And we need to take time and attention and effort into walking with God so that we might end well. Um, how, many of you, how many of you guys in here or gals are baseball fans? Any baseball fans in the room? Uh, how, many, how many of you all know about the Cubs, right? What do the Cubs do? The Cubs start well, and then in September they crash. And how many, how many years have the, the Cubs been starting well but crashing in September? A hundred years. A hundred years. Yeah. Uh, Ray Hollenbach was really unpleased with me this morning. So it's not, it's not how you start, but it really is, in some ways, how you finish. Uh, or to change analogies quite a little bit here, slightly, it's, it, you know, the fourth quarter actually matters. So what you score 30 in the first quarter? If in the fourth quarter you lose, who cares? Right? Um, let me change the analogy one more time. Um, this is for you, Sarah. Okay, this is for you. If you bake a cake... And if it's a delicious cake, if it's moist and it's chocolate, and then you put rancid icing on it at the very end, does that matter? Yeah, it matters. The only way to redeem the cake at that point is to scrape the rancid icing off. And then 
even after you scrape the rancid icing off, there are going to be bits, little tiny flecks of rancid icing that you get in your mouth. And then you have to discard a certain amount of the good, delicious, moist chocolate cake because you're trying to separate yourself from the rancid icing. The way things end matter, right? They really matter. Well, in the same way, life with God is less of a sprint. It's more of a marathon. And, and one of the things that we, we haven't heard very often in the church is that when you began to believe in Jesus, you actually entered into a contest that's going to be longer and more difficult than you ever imagined. Life with Jesus is not easy. And it isn't short. And it's one of the main reasons that the New Testament is littered with words like endurance and perseverance and continue on. Those phrases are everywhere in the New Testament. I speak for a living. I'm very graceful. We shouldn't shrink back from words like hard. Life with Jesus is hard, and we shouldn't shrink back from words like hard because hard is always connected to value. How many of you know it's hard to get gold? It's under mountains. It's covered up by rock. It takes a lot of equipment, lots of man hours. It's dangerous. And when you extract it, it's worth something. See, easy is just another synonym for worthless. And we shouldn't be afraid of, of difficult. How you start is not necessarily how you will end. It's really important that we finish well. There's a a scripture I've been thinking about this week and it's out of the book of James in James chapter 1 verse 12 it says this it says blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him how many of you know that there's a crown of life that you could potentially get from the Lord Jesus himself and how you finish matters like like you could make it in but but maybe not get the crown there's a Jesus is going to offer a crown for people who persevere and endure See, I want to finish well. I want to, I want to run and I want to keep on running. And at the very end of the age, I want, to hear, I want to hear the Father in heaven look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, that, that's one of the things that we're living for. I, I hope you're living for that. Not just to escape hell, but to hear your Father, the only person in the whole universe who's good, to hear the only person who's truly good look at you and say, well done, and call you good. I was, I was discussing this very passage with a friend the other night, and it was the, the Spirit came and, and hung out with us just while we fellowshiped over this one little passage. There, there's going to be a day, and people in heaven are going to come before the Father, and the Father, the only good person, is going to look at some people, and He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's going to actually be people in heaven who don't get the well done. They're going to be in heaven, but they don't get the well done. There's a reward. We're running for reward. So one of the questions we might want to ask ourselves about Gideon in particular is, what led to the demise after such great victory? If the Spirit kept this really sad ending in here, if the Spirit kept a man of victory who ended his life by leading the nation into apostasy, if it kept it in the book, why? Such a big question. Why? A couple reasons. Uh, really simply put, the first reason is this, uh, the will of the people, and then the second reason is Gideon's own will. And we're going to look at that this morning. The will of the people and Gideon's own will. The first thing we're going to look at is the will of the people. The will of the people and Gideon's own will 
were greater and they were tended to more carefully than the will of the Lord. And what did the people want? If you'll put up verse 22 and following. After Gideon had defeated the Midian army, the people come to him. 22. Next one before that. Bam. Gideon, the people said to Gideon, rule over us your son and your grandson because you have saved us from the hand of of Midian. Uh, Several things there. Uh, The first thing is this, is that it says the Israelites said to Gideon, and when it says the Israelites said to Gideon, what they're getting at is that all of Israel said this to Gideon. And that's important because up to this point, especially in the book of Judges, the Israelites had not been together on anything. And not only were they fighting uh, their enemies in Midian, but they were actually fighting one another. And Gideon actually has an episode where where the, the people from Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel, come to him and they, they want to quarrel with him. They fight all the time. But one thing, one thing they're unified in. We want to make Gideon a ruler, but not just a ruler. It's a particular kind of ruler. Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson. Do you guys understand what they're getting at there? You, your son, and your, and your grandson? They're talking about dynasty. And if we're talking about dynasty and lineage, what are we talking about? Kingship. The people wanted to make Gideon a king. The difference between a judge, which is what Gideon was and what he was called and commissioned to be, a judge is a person who was called and commissioned to be a savior and a deliverer and to fight Midian. That was Gideon's that was Gideon's call and commission. Save, deliver, fight Midian. You'll be, you will be anointed. And the Lord wasn't necessarily anointing his sons and bringing them into position. But a king, that is a commission for a lineage, right? The Lord makes a promise to David. From you, rulers. And so the will of the people was to make Gideon a king. And there's some irony here. I don't know if you remember from last week's message, but there's some real irony here. In chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord says to Gideon, he has assimilated an army of 32,000 people, and he's about to go out and fight the Midianite army of 135,000. And the Lord comes to Gideon and says, you have too many. Why? Because if you win with 32,000, then Israel is going to say that it wasn't the Lord who saved us, but it was our own strength that saved us, right? And so Gideon goes out with 300 and defeats the Midianite army. And what do the people say? Rule over us because you have saved us. The irony is unbelievable. Even they, they couldn't see the Lord. And so the will of the people is one of the main factors that leads to an unhappy ending and a season of ruin. You see, democracy is an okay way to organize government here and now, but democracy is not the kingdom. Furthermore, Democracy is often impotent in being able to cooperate with God and His kingdom. We need to hear that as Americans. Um, not only that, Israel wanted a king, but they already had a king, and the king was God. Furthermore, rule by the people is often a manifestation of our collective blindness to the presence of God and to the will of God. When everybody wants something, it could be a sign of spirit unity, or it could just be that all of us are completely blind to the presence and the will of God. We need to hear that. In fact, one of the things that happens, and I'll tell you this, um, when all of the people here at the vineyard want something or think something is good and right, I get nervous. It might be that we are unified in the Spirit, or it might be that we're completely blind to the presence of God and the will of God. God's, God's will was never for Gideon to be king. God's will was that he would be a judge. And everyone in Israel wanted to make him a king. It's one of the factors that leads to demise. 
Um, Israel was led by God. And one of the things that we need to jump off of that idea to this morning is, is we need to realize in the way that Israel was truly led by God that the church is truly led by Jesus. And, and this morning, one of the things I need you to let you know is um, I'm not the leader of the vineyard. Um, and you're not the leader of the vineyard. The leader of the vineyard is Jesus. He leads the church. He leads the global church, and he also leads the local church. He's, he's the head of the church. It's what it says. And that's what it says in the scriptures. It says in Colossians 1.18 that he's the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So in every way he may have supremacy. Um, when everybody thinks that we ought to go in a certain direction, it sometimes should be, give us pause. It may be a sign of spirit and unity, or it may be a sign of democratic rule by the people blindness and that's really common really really common really common and then the next factor that led to an unhappy ending and a generation of demise was Gideon's own will and Gideon's own will is demonstrated much more subtly at the beginning at the end of his life he becomes brazen but at the, at the beginning here it's really, really subtle, and so we have to look with, with critical eyes. But there are six ways in which Gideon exercised his will, and in doing so, progressed in walking outside of God's will. The first way was his dealing with his own people. Okay, I want to put up some scripture here. It's out of chapter 8, and starting with uh, verse 4. Uh, Gideon crossed over the Jordan, and in verse 4, what has happened here is 120,000 Midianites have hacked themselves and Gideon is chasing 15,000 and in particular he's chasing the kings of Midian and he comes to the men of Sukkoth and by, way, by the way the men of Sukkoth are also, are, they are also Israelites so these are Gideon's these are his brothers okay these are kinsmen he comes to him and he says give my troops some bread they are worn out I am pursuing, pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna the kings of Midian but the officials of Sukkoth said, do you already have the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give you bread? Why should we give bread to your troops? And so they're mocking him. They're saying, I don't see those guys. Why are we going to give you bread? Now, by the way, for your own kinsmen not to help you in a time of battle, that's not an okay thing. I think we all recognize that, right? But Gideon says to them, he says, he says okay, you don't give us any bread. I'm going to go catch the kings of Midian. And when I come back, I'm going to flog you in, perp in, in public with briars. And then he goes on, look at, I think it's verse 9. Then he comes to the men of Peniel, and he says, When I turn, which the men from Peniel, they were also Israelites. And he says, Give us some bread. And they say, We're not going to do it. And he says, When I return, I'm going to tear down this tower. I'm going to kill your men. And these are his own brothers, his own kinsmen. Now, um, this is interesting to me because Gideon was given a commission and a call to be a judge, to be a savior, and to be a deliverer, and to fight Midian, who had been oppressing Israel. And when he gets an answer from his own men, that, from his own kinsmen that he doesn't like, when he doesn't receive help from them, rather than being gracious, Gideon comes back after he captures the, the kings and he takes the men of Sukkoth and he grabs them out in public and he takes wild briars and he flogs them in public. And then he goes to the men of Penel and he tears down their tower and he kills them. The irony here is that he was called to deliver Israel from oppression and he actually becomes an enforcer of a new kind of oppression to his own men. This is the beginning of Gideon 
leaving God's ways and beginning to walk in his own way. The second way is this, is that Gideon chases and he kills the Midianite kings. And on one reading of the story, we might think, no big deal. That's what he was commissioned to do. He was commissioned to save Israel and to rid Israel of her, of her enemies in Midian. And, of course, that would include the kings. But we need to look at verses 18 and 19 in chapter 8 because they show us his true heart motivation. Perfect. He grabs, he finally chases these kings down. And look at verse 18. He comes to Ziba and he says to Ziba and Zalmunna, he says, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Now, the first thing I want you to understand here is that in the whole story of Gideon, you will never find any commentary about any battle at Tabor. There, there's nothing in the whole battle, there's nothing in the whole Bible about a battle at Tabor. So Gideon's bringing up something from the past. And the kings answer him, men like you, each one with the bearing of a prince. They're trying to be sweet. They know they're about to be killed. They're trying to get out of it. And then he goes on to say, those were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Now Gideon was commissioned by the Lord to save his people and to fight the Midian army. But why was he really chasing the Midianite kings? Retribution. Retribution. And here's the, here's the really sneaky thing about that. To everyone on the outside, it looks like Gideon is doing what he's commissioned to do, right? Everyone on the outside, everyone else in Israel would look at Gideon and go, he's got a call from God and he's actually being obedient to the call from God. But in his own heart, Gideon's not actually being obedient to the will of God. He's actually going to settle a score. It's totally different. It looks right on the outside, but on the inside, it's about settling a personal score. He's made this thing personal. And how many of you know that obedience, right actions done from a wrong heart, make you and I an older brother living in the father's house? You all remember the story of the prodigal son? One son runs off and goes nutty. The other son stays home, but he's got a bitter heart. Both sons, at the end of the story, are disconnected from their father. Hmm. Why is always such a big deal? Obedience was out of a place of family honor rather than honor for God. And then number three, the people come to Gideon in, in verse 22 and 23, and they ask him to be king. And he says, I don't want to be king, but if you would do me a favor, give me all the earrings from the Midianite soldiers, 40 pounds of gold, 150 years wages. And we also know from the scripture that Gideon took the robes from the Midianite kings, their purple robes. He took the robes. And he also took the gold chains that were around their camel's necks. I don't want to be king, but give me the gold, right? I don't want to be king, but give me the king's robes. And I don't want to be king, but give me the camel's gold chains. He took the spoils, which is easy to overlook. We might pad past that. We might think, well, of course, he deserves it. But then, number four, he takes the gold and he makes an, he makes an ephod, which is this priestly robe. It's kind of like a tunic thing. And there would have been a couple stones in the front of this tunic, and they would have used these stones to determine the will of God. And you might think, well, that's not such a big deal for him to do that. But it was, it was a big deal because Gideon was never commissioned to be a priest, and now he's beginning to take on a calling and a commission that was never his. Gideon was called to be a judge. He was never called to be priest. Furthermore, God had said, I want priestly tabernacle worship to happen, not in Gideon's hometown, but I want it to, I want it to happen in a place called Shiloh. So when Gideon takes the gold, 
he really would, shouldn't have taken. And when he makes this priestly garment out of it, and he, he sets it up in his hometown, he was actually beginning to work against the Lord because the Lord had wanted priestly worship to happen in a place called Shiloh. And so now Israel's becoming divided. And how many of you know that in Shiloh, where they had a tabernacle set up, and they had a priest, and the priest wore a and they had the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you know that what they had in Shiloh probably couldn't match the splendor of what Gideon had erected with 40 pounds of gold in his own hometown? And so now Gideon begins to interject consumerist possibilities. You know, I don't really want to go to Shiloh. It's a little far, and honestly, it does, it's not as pretty. There's more gold where Gideon's at. We'll go there. Israel began to prostitute themselves out. And I think the really big deal here is that Gideon began to walk outside of his own call and his own office and his own commission from the Lord. Uh, one of the things that happens to anointed people, uh, the Lord will give somebody a call. Um, by the way, he gives everyone in here a call. He gives everyone in here a call. He gives everyone in here a commission. He gives everyone in here anointing to complete the call and the mission. And sometimes when we begin to walk in our call and our commission, sometimes when we begin to experience the favor of God in an area, we wrongly assume that God has anointed us to do everything. I've seen this over and over again. Like pastors who get anointed to preach, then they assume that they're like the boss of everything. Oh, that's that's major, major misstep. Uh, furthermore, if we really look closely at this, we see that Gideon is setting up uh, temple tabernacle worship in a place that God didn't ordain. And we have to ask ourselves, what would Gideon even know about temple and tabernacle worship? I'll give you a hint. It starts with a zero. <laughs> Gideon knew nothing about temple and tabernacle worship. Um, you remember the first thing that God asked uh, Gideon to do after he met the angel? He told Gideon, go tear down the Asherah pole and the altar of Baal in your backyard, right? See, Gideon's family had been propagating Baal and Asherah worship for the entire region. Gideon grew up, even though he was an Israelite, he grew up in a Canaanite environment with pagan worship. Gideon's entire life was pagan worship up to that moment with the angel in the wine press. And so when he began to set up tabernacle worship in a place that God hadn't ordained it, he was, without even knowing it, because he didn't really know what to do, he began to intermingle Baal worship and practices back into worship of the one true God. I believe it's the reason that after Gideon dies that the people immediately go back to Baal. Why? Because he had already been leading them there. He was, he was operating out of the thing he already knew. Does that make sense? And so he, he makes an ifad. He, he sets up a shrine, and it says in the Scripture that the people prostituted themselves there And then number five, uh, in verses 29 through 30, it says that Gideon took many wives and concubines. Um, and at this time, it would have been fairly common for an Israelite man to have maybe an extra wife. Um, maybe you'd have an extra wife. If you were, if you were rich, you might have two wives. Um, but the only person who had many wives would have been a king. And a couple reasons. One, only kings could afford many wives. Um, and then two, um, kings, kings want to propagate their family seed and, and make their lineage as, as big and as deep and as wide as possible so that the, the royal throne can be protected and that everyone who could possibly lay hold of the crown is an heir. Does that make sense? Okay, so we have to ask ourselves, 
why is Gideon doing this? Why is he doing this? It says in verse 29, Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons. How many? 70 sons. Dang. How many daughters did he have? I have no clue. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called him Abimelech. So Gideon tells the people, I don't want to be king, but he takes all the spoils. He sets up worship where God had not ordained worship, and he has many wives. Now I want to show you one more scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. This is what the Lord says. He says, If you have a king, he must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Gideon says, I don't want to be king, but what is his? what are his actions saying? I want to be king, right? I, I want I want the bling, I want the robe, I want the camel chain. Like you like the camel chain is a big deal. Like I'm gonna hang one off of my Jetta. As soon as I find one. He has the gold. He, he has hot women. He has camel chains. He has purple robes. And then the final the final thing, as if this wasn't clear enough for us, the final thing, uh, number six, the scripture tells us that Gideon had a son by a concubine and he named him Abimelech. Does anyone in here know what the name Abimelech means? The name Abimelech means my father is king. I don't want to be king. Give me the gold. Give me the jewels. Give me the purple robes, the camel chain, the hot women, and we'll name this guy my father is king. But I don't want to be king. Some Bible scholars also believe that, that Abimelech could potentially mean my father is Molech, which is one of the worst gods in the Old Testament. It's either my father is king or potentially my father is Molech, and Molech's one of the worst gods in the Old Testament. He's the guy that people would take their brand new babies and they would throw them in a fire and they would offer them to him. So we, we see that there's this potential that this synchristic mixture has already begun to invade Gideon's life and his demise is here, it's brazen. simply said Gideon says one thing I don't want to be king but he lives out another way and in doing so he sets his country and his people on a path to apostasy and finally in verse 34 the people do not even remember the Lord there was a division in his words and deeds a man who started so well ended poorly one of the other things I see in this is that when it comes to victory and failure, we, we oftentimes assume that victory and failure are sort of like isolated, unconnected events. What I mean by that is, is that we assume that like victory is ours, like mine. Like if I have a victory, it's my victory. And if I have a, if I have a downfall, if I have a defeat, it's my defeat. Uh, but that's really not the case at all. Uh, anytime I have a victory, it's actually a victory for everybody in the room. And anytime I have a failure, it's actually our failure. Um, put it this way. Um, how many of you have heard stories where uh, man and woman, they get married, they have some kids, and then dad cheats on his wife and runs off and has an utter meltdown collapse. How many of you know that his utter meltdown collapse isn't his own personal issue? It just became everyone's issue, right? Like defeat is never 
never isolated to me. It, it, it's like acid that just gets thrown on everyone. People who didn't even ask for it. So victory and defeat, they're communal. There's always fallout. There's always momentum. I bring that up because um, I don't know anyone who has a life goal to be a murderer. I've never heard a nine-year-old boy or girl tell their mom and dad, you know what I'm really hoping for? I'm really hoping when I grow up, I'll, I'll be a murderer. Or I've, I've never met a believer who says to another believer, you know what I'm really hoping for? really love Jesus. I'm hoping that by the end of my life, I could lead the church astray and we could all become devil worshipers. I'm being extreme and silly, but how many of you understand that we don't make goals like that? Like, no one, no one's hoping to like ruin ourselves and other people. And because none of us have goals like that, we assume that because we're not murdering and because we're not leading the church astray and causing other people to become devil worshippers, we assume we're okay, right? But one of the things that the story of Gideon tells us is, is that it's never the big thing. It's always the accumulation of a bunch of small things, and it's the little things that take us further and further, and they establish new normals, and then when you get a new normal established, you become comfortable with that. It's like, it's like this, um, uh, oh, I don't ever want to do drugs. And then you go hang out with some people who... who who start doing some drugs and you sort of become comfortable with drug environment and then the next thing you know like maybe you're doing something you never imagined and you just become comfortable with that I'm just going to live in this I'm just going to live in this you know marijuana world by the way it just it comes out of the ground if God didn't want us to smoke it then why is it coming out of the ground you know I mean I, that's my favorite argument dude like it just comes out of the ground man like if you didn't want us to smoke it and so you become comfortable with marijuana world for a while. And, and, but then there's all this stuff that happens in marijuana world that's bonkers. And then you become accustomed to the drama with everything that happens in marijuana world. Next thing you know, you've got a new normal established. We've moved. And then you go hang out with like another family that isn't comfortable with marijuana world. And you go, wow, this family is really different. Like you couldn't even tell until you went over to the family that doesn't live in marijuana world. You're like, you guys have significantly less Doritos in your house than we do in my house. Where's the Mountain Dew? It's an easy target. Nevertheless, no one's looking to be a drug addict. No one's looking to be a murderer. No Christian's shooting to deceive the church and fall away from God and lead a band of devil worshipers. So the way it happens, it happens like this disappointment you can get disappointed this is what happens you can get disappointed and your disappointment can justify anger and anger can justify retribution and retribution can look like obedience and because it looks like obedience can win popularity and popularity can be monetized into cash and mixed with hot women and misplaced worship and sewn into many wives which raises up a family without a witness of love for God or any sort of obedience and the next thing you know you're ruined The point is this. The point is that trajectory is real. We, we talk about this sometimes at the vineyard. But I have to bring it up. The reason I have to bring it up more than once is because we, we need to get it. And the reason I want to make sure that we get it is I'm so tired of walking alongside of people who are really good people who just end up ruining their lives. It's so sad. 
sad to be with people who are ruining their life. Trajectory is real. Like, you can be off one degree. And if you're off one degree, no one in the room is probably going to recognize that you're off one degree. No one's going no to recognize. You're just off one degree. It's, it's barely perceptible. You can't see it with your naked eye, and you really can't even perceive it with the eye of the Spirit. They're off just one degree. It's just barely. It's within a normal range. But the problem with being off one degree is trajectory because when you multiply one degree of offness over distance and time, in a few short years, you will end up in a place that you never intended to go if you don't course correct. It's the reason that most people never get depressed till they turn 30. Most people, there are some people who grow up with depression, maybe some sort of chemical thing, or maybe you lived a particularly hard life and, and so you identify with depression or depressed moods earlier. But most people don't experience real depression until you turn 30. Because, because This is why. Because when you turn 30, you've lived enough life for all of your small, insignificant choices that you didn't think matter. They come home to you about the time you turn 30 and you realize, holy crap, this stuff is real. You were off one degree. You were a 17-year-old, like, angst kid, and you were, you were just off, like, one degree, and your mama was still mostly happy because you kind of went to church on Sundays. You thought, well... He's a little angry, but he's going to church, so it's okay. And then that anger gets multiplied over 12 or 13 years, and he ends up being 31, and he's a jerk. And then he's depressed. Trajectory's real. Small choices. Momentum is not a joke. Nothing in life is static. Nothing in, Your life is not static. You're either growing closer to Jesus, incrementally, small, closer to Jesus or you're moving further away no one is staying at one spot with Jesus it's impossible to do it defies philosophy and physics everybody in here has a heart and your heart is a greenhouse and it's always growing something and you can't make your heart not a greenhouse sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that small cobras are harmless I don't know if you know this, but a baby cobra will kill you. Some of us are just worried about the big cobras. The big cobras will kill you. But if you throw a baby cobra in your bed, you're waking up dead the next morning. Tiny cobras, the same venom. Same venom. And the real problem with tiny cobras is that you think you can manage them for a while. You can get a stick and you can knock a tiny cobra out of the way. Get out of my house, you tiny cobra. You know, the tiny cobra doesn't scare me so as much. Like, I respect it. Like, you know, I don't want to. I can just knock that tiny cobra out of the way. And, you, and, and that's when we're really, that's when we're really stuck. When you get a tiny cobra in your life and it's just a little baby one, whenever you give in to the thought that I can manage this tiny cobra, you're losing. You're losing. You can't manage cobras. You kill cobras. And the naturalists are like, well, you know, they, they provide lots of benefits for the ecosystem. No, you kill cobras, okay? We don't, I saw this show. I saw this show where this crazy snake guy, so maybe some of you guys, you know, the, there's a whole genre of TV out there. Like I call it snake guy shows. There's like eight of them. Uh, Steve Irwin was the first one, God rest his soul. But it's one of these snake guy shows and I forget who this particular snake guy was river. Who's the guy that went looking into India for the giant Cobra? Yeah, you do. Anyway, if you remember, you just, 
me and Seth in the river, we were watching this snake guy, and he goes into India looking for the, a king cobra. Well, he finds a king cobra, all right. The sucker is 16 feet long. And when he meets it out in the jungle floor, the thing raises off the floor and is looking a full-grown man in the eye. <laughs> no, problem with, the problem with baby cobras is that they, you can't manage them. They grow. And eventually, if you try to manage a baby cobra, what you're going to have is a 16-foot-long cobra that can look you in the eye, and snakes that are that big can swallow you in one bite. And you know what happens after a snake that big bites you, kills you, and eats you? It goes looking for your kids. Because it's always hungry. Trajectory's real. A baby cobra can kill you. And after it kills you and eats you, it's going to be hungry for someone else. Is this encouraging? <laughs> Just realize it. It's not very encouraging, but it's the good news. <clears throat> I'm teaching you how to deal with cobras. Uh, four things we can do with the cobras. They're really quick, so you can stop worrying. Uh, number one, we need to recognize that if this sort of thing can happen to Gideon, it can happen to me. By the way, Gideon had a level of encounter with Jesus and had a victory that... Pretty much no one in this room is ever going to have. I don't know that the Lord is going to lead anyone in this room into battle with 300 people and defeat 135,000. Gideon has a, a level of victory that is sort of like unparalleled in the entire world. And if a guy who has that kind of victory with God can fall to the demise that he did, it can happen to me. If it can happen to Gideon, it can happen to me. We, we need to read the scripture that way. Number two, um, you need to review your life and you need to be honest and you need to reflect. In fact, one of the things you can do, I highly suggest it. I even do this. It's on my phone. Um, you can set an alarm and you can, you know how you can set alarms for any time you want? You should set an alarm for the, in the next year, every three months, and it should just come up and it should say, review your life. About once every three months, review your life. Review, reflect on your life. Ask yourself, are there any tiny cobras that I'm trying to manage? You know you have a cobra when, uh, when you have something in your life that you don't want to share with someone else. Most of us don't want to take cobras and throw them in someone else's house, right? If Ryan came to my house and threw a cobra in, into my house, Ryan and I have a problem. <laughs> First, I'm going to kill the cobra, and then I'm coming looking for Ryan. Right? Mm-hmm. But you need to be honest. You need to reflect. You need to, you need to ask yourself, are there, is there a tiny cobra in my life? Is there something that I don't want to share with someone else? That's a cobra. You might manage it right now, but it's poison. If it bites you, it could kill you. Reflect on your life. Also this, uh, consider your obedience uh, to the Lord. Consider the areas where you're, you're obeying the Lord, and now ask yourself, why am I doing this? Are you doing it because you love the Lord and you feel called? Or are you doing it because you're working a, a separate agenda like Gideon? Called to free Israel and fight Midian, but really he was settling scores. Is there, an, is, there, is there a subtext to my obedience? If there is, we need to review that. Uh, number three, we need to course correct. Course correct means repent, confess, ask forgiveness, apologize to people, and move on. 
Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, airplanes are off course like 98% of the time, but they course correct. They're always course correcting, and they can get to where they're going. But you, need to, you need to course correct. You need to ask forgiveness. You need to, you need to repent. Um, w- one of the questions I have for everybody in the room this morning is, is, in the last year, have you told anyone that you're sorry? Have you asked forgiveness from anyone in the last year? If you haven't, that's a bad sign. Because the truth is, you've been a jerk to someone. I don't care how nice you are, you've been jerky to someone. Have you asked anyone to forgive you? Um, have you told? Have you repented to the Lord in the last year for anything? For anything. If you haven't, that's a really bad sign. You need to course correct. Review your life. Course correct. Reflect. Repent. Confess. Move on. And then number four, you need to live for reward. You need to live with a consciousness that one day God is going to come to me and he just might say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm living for that. I'm living for the James chapter 1, verse 12, crown of life that comes from Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? And everyone else can stand up, and I want to pray for you this morning. There's probably a person or two in the room who uh, really needs to respond to the message and just during the message, you realize that the trajectory of your life is not terrific. Um, maybe it looks okay to everyone else, but maybe in your own heart of hearts, if you're really, really, really honest, you know that you're off one degree. And and we should we should do course correction even here this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray for you guys, but after I'm finished praying, if if you realize that man, there may be a place in my life where I am off course. I want you to come forward. It's really important to respond. Come forward. Let these guys pray with you. Um, um, Get the cobra out in the open. Uh, It works better if you have two or three people beating the cobra down rather than one. So, Father, we ask in your name that you would would give us grace to not only start well but to finish well. God, we, we we want to not have the Gideon narrative placed upon our lives. God, we don't want to be people of victory for a season who end up walking in defeat. God, we, we don't want to be people who experience um, uh, the great things of God and then in the end end up leading our families and our neighbors away from you. Uh, God, we don't want to diminish in our love for you. God, we don't want to diminish in our call or our commission. God, we want to continue on in that. And so, Father, right now we ask for grace. Right now, God, would you give us grace? God, would you give us grace to identify Uh, the cobras and the unmentionables in our life. God, would you give us grace to identify uh, the the areas where our obedience is compromised with our own agenda. God, would you give us grace to identify uh, places where we are are, are just walking one degree off. Um, God, that we might course correct with you. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Hey, if you need to respond to the message, come on up. If you're sick in your body in any way, Anyway, we want to pray for you. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. The Mass is ended. Go in peace.